Hi. Before we begin with part 4 of Ishmael, let me read the last few lines of part 3 so we can get back to where we were. Do you have a feeling now for where you might find the other parts of the story, the middle and the end? I give this some thought. I'd watch Noah, I think. Why? I'd say if Noah was doing the story of creation, the story I told today would be the outline. All I have to do now is figure out how they do the rest. Then that's your next assignment. Tomorrow I want to hear the middle of the story. And now Ishmael, part 4. Okay, I said. I think I have the middle and the end of the story down pat. Ishmael nodded and I started the tape recorder. What I did was start with the premise. The world was made for man. Then I asked myself how I would write the story as a treatment for Noah. It came out like this. The world was made for man, but it took him a long, long time to figure that out. For nearly three million years, he lived as though the world had been made for jellyfish. That is, he lived as though he were just like any other creature, as though he were a lion or a wombat. What exactly does it mean to live like a lion or a wombat? It means to live at the mercy of the world. It means to live without having any control over your environment. I see. Go on. Okay, in this condition, man could not truly be man. He couldn't develop a truly human way of life. A way of life that was distinctively human. So during the early part of his life, actually, the greater part of his life, man just foozled along getting nowhere and doing nothing. As it happened, there was a Cree problem to be solved. And it was this that took me a long time to work out. What the problem was. Man could get nowhere living like the lion or a wombat because if you're a lion or a wombat, uh, in order to accomplish anything, man had to settle down in one place where he could get to work, so to speak. I mean that it was impossible for him to get beyond a certain point living out in the open as a hunter-gatherer, always moving from place to place in search of food. To get beyond that point, he had to settle down had to have a permanent base from which he could begin to master his own environment. Okay, why not? I mean, well, what was stopping him from doing that? What was stopping him from the What was stopping him was the fact that if he settled down in one place for more than a few weeks, he'd starve. As a hunter-gatherer, he would simply clean the place out. There would be nothing left to hunt and gather. In order to achieve settlement, Man had to learn one fundamental manipulation. He had to learn how to manipulate this environment so that his food exhaustion didn't occur. He had to manipulate it so it produced more human food. In other words, he had to become an agriculturist. This was the turning point. The world had been made for man, but he was unable to take possession of it until this problem was cracked. And he finally cracked it about 10,000 years ago back there in the Fertile Crescent. This was a very big moment, the biggest in human history up to this point. Man was at last free of all those restraints that uh, the limitations of the hunting-gathering life had kept him in check for three million years. With agriculture, those limitations vanished, and his rise was meteoric. Settlement gave rise to division of labor. Division of labor gave rise to technology,
With the rise of technology came trade and commerce. With trade and commerce came mathematics and literacy and science and all the rest. The whole thing was underway at last, and the rest, as they say, is history. And that's the middle of the story? Very impressive, Ishmael said. I'm sure you realize that the big moment you've just described was in fact the birth of your culture. Yes. It should be pointed out, however, that the notion that agriculture spread across the world from a single point of origin is distinctly old hat. Nevertheless, the fertile crescent remains the legendary birthplace of agriculture, at least in the West. And this has a special importance that we'll look at later on. Okay. Yesterday's part of the story revealed the meaning of the world as it's understood among the takers. The world is a human life support system, a machine designed to produce and sustain human life. Right. Today's part of the story seems to be about the destiny of man. Obviously, it was not man's destiny to live like a lion or a wombat. That's right. What is man's destiny then? Hmm, I said, well, man's destiny is to achieve, to accomplish great things. As it's known among the takers, man's destiny is more specific than that. Well, I suppose you could say that his destiny is to build civilization. Think mythologically. I'm afraid I don't know how that's done. I'll demonstrate. Listen. As we saw yesterday, creation wasn't complete when jellyfish appeared, or when amphibians appeared, or when reptiles appeared, or even when mammals appeared. According to your mythology, it was complete only when man appeared. Right. Why was the world and the universe incomplete without man? Why did the world and the universe need man? I don't know. Well, think about it. Think about the world without man. Imagine the world without man. Okay, I said, and closed my eyes. A couple of minutes later, I told him I was imagining the world without man. What's it like? I don't know, it's just the world. Where are you? What do you mean? Where are you looking at it from? Oh, from above, from outer space. What are you doing up there? I don't know. Why aren't you down on the surface? I don't know, without man on it, I'm just a visitor, an alien. Well, go down to the surface. Okay, I said, but after a minute I went on to say, that's interesting. I'd rather not go down there. Why? What's down there? I laughed. The jungle is down there. I see, you mean nature red in tooth and claw, dragons of the prime that tear each other in the slime. That's right. And what would happen if you did go down there? I'd be one of the ones the dragons were tearing in their slime. I opened my eyes in time to see Ishmael nodding. And it is at this point that we begin to see where man fits into the divine scheme. The gods didn't mean to leave the world a jungle, did they? You mean in our mythology? Certainly not. So, without man, the world was unfinished. It was just nature, red in tooth and claw. It was in chaos, in a state of primeval anarchy. That's right, that's it, exactly. So, it needed what? It needed someone to come in and straighten it out. Someone to put it in order. And what sort of a person it is who straightens things out? 
What sort of a person takes anarchy in hand and puts it in order? Well, a ruler, a king. Of course, the world needs a ruler. It needed man. Yes. So now we have a clearer idea what the story is all about. The world was made for man and man was made to rule it. Yes, that's very obvious now. Everyone understands that. And this is what? What? Is this fact? No. Then what is it? It's mythology, I said. Of which no trace is to be found in your culture. That's right. Once again, Ishmael stared at me glumly through the glass. Look, I said after a bit, the things you're showing me, the things you're doing are almost beyond belief. I know that. But it's not just in me to leap up out of my chair while striking my bro and crying. My God, this is incredible. He wrinkled his forehead thoughtfully for a moment before saying, What's wrong with you then? He seemed so genuinely concerned that I had to smile. All frozen inside, I told him. An iceberg. He shook his head. Sorry for me. To return to our subject, as you say, it took man a long, long time to tumble to the fact that he was meant for greater things than he could achieve living like a lion or a wombat. For some three million years, he was just part of the anarchy. Was just one more creature rolling around in the slime. Right. It was only about 10,000 years ago that he finally realized that his place was not in the slime. He had to lift himself out of the slime and take, and take this place in hand and straighten it out. Right. But the world didn't meekly submit to human rule, did it? No. The world defied him. What man built up, the wind and rain tore down. The, the fields he cleared for his crops and his villages, the jungle fought to reclaim. The seeds he sowed, the birds snatched away. The shoots he nurtured, the insects nibbled. The harvest he stored, the mice plundered. The animals he bred and fed, the foxes and the wolves stole away. The mountains, the rivers, and the oceans stood in their places, but would not make way for him. The earthquake, the flood, the hurricane, the blizzard, and the drought would not disappear at his command. True. The world would not meekly submit to man's rule, so he had to do what to it? What do you mean? If the king comes to a city that will not submit to its rule, what does he have to do it? He has to conquer it. Of course, in order to make himself the ruler of the world, man first had to conquer it. Good lord, I said, and nearly leapt out of my chair while striking my bro at all the rest. Yes. You hear it fifty times a day. You can turn on the radio or the television and hear it every hour. Man is conquering the deserts. Man is conquering the oceans. Man is conquering the atom. Man is conquering the elements. Man is conquering outer space. Ishmael smiled. You didn't believe me when I said this story is ambient in your culture. Now you see what I mean? The mythology of your culture hums in your ears so constantly that no one pays the slightest bit of attention to it. Of course, man is conquering space and the atom and the deserts and the oceans and the elements. According to your mythology, this is what he was born to do. Yes, that's very clear now. Now the first two parts of the story have come together. The world was made for man and man was made to conquer and rule it. And how does the second part contribute to your explanation of how things came to be this way? Let me think about that. Once again, 
this is a sort of sneaky way of blaming the gods. They made the world for man, and they made man to conquer and rule it, which he eventually did. And this is how things came to be the way they are. Nail it down, go a little deeper. I closed my eyes and gave it a couple of minutes, but nothing came. Ishmael nodded toward the windows. All this, all your triumphs and tragedies, all your marvels and miseries are a direct result of what? I chewed on it for a while, but I still couldn't see what he was getting at. Try it this way, Ishmael said. Things wouldn't be the way they are if the gods had meant man to live like a lion or a wombat, would they? No. Man's destiny was to conquer and rule the world. So things came to be this way as a direct result of? Of fulfilling man's destiny. Of course, he had to fulfill his destiny, didn't he? Yes, absolutely. So what is there to get excited about? Very true, very true. So as the takers see it, all of this is simply the price of becoming human. How do you mean? It wasn't possible to fully become human living beside the dragons in the slime, was it? In order to fully become human, man had to pull himself out of the slime. And all this is the result. As the takers see it, the gods gave man the same choice they gave Achilles. A brief life of glory or a long, uneventful life in obscurity. And the takers chose a brief life of glory. Yes, that's certainly how it's understood. People just shrug and say, well, this is the price that had to be paid for indoor plumbing and central heating and air conditioning and automobiles and all the rest. I gave him a quizzical look. And what are you saying? I'm saying that the price you've paid is not the price of becoming human. It's not even the price of the things you've just mentioned. It's the price of enacting a story that casts mankind as the enemy of the world. Part 5 we have the beginning and the middle of the story together, Ishmael said when we started the next day. Man is finally beginning to fulfill his destiny. The conquest of the world is underway. And how does this story end? I guess I should have kept on going yesterday. I've sort of lost the thread. Perhaps it would help to listen the way the second part ends. Good idea. I rewound a minute or two of the tape and let it play. Man was at last free of all those restraints that the limitations of hunting, gathering life had kept man in check for three million years. With agriculture, those limitations vanished, and his rise was meteoric. Settlement gave rise to division of labor. Division of labor gave rise to technology. With the rise of technology came trade and commerce. With trade and commerce came mathematics and literacy and science and all the rest. The whole thing was underway at last, and the rest, as they say, is history. Right, I said. Okay, man's destiny was to conquer and rule the world, and this is what he'd done, almost. He hasn't quite made it, and it looks as though he, this may be his undoing. The problem is that man's conquest of the world has itself devastated the world. And in spite of all the mastery we've attained, we don't have enough mastery to stop devastating the world, or to repair the devastation we've already wrought. We've poured our poisons into the world as though it were a bottomless pit. And we go on pouring our poisons into the world. We've gobbled up irreplaceable resources as though they could never run out. And we go on gobbling them up. It's hard to imagine how the world could survive another century of this abuse. But nobody is doing, really doing anything about it. It's a problem our children will have to solve. Or their children. Only one thing can save us. 
we have to increase our mastery of the world. All this damage has come about through our conquest of the world, but we have to go on conquering until the rule is absolute. Then, when we are in complete control, everything will be fine. We'll have fusion power, no pollution. We'll turn the rain on and off. We'll grow a bushel of wheat in a square centimeter. We'll turn the oceans into farms. We'll control the weather. No more hurricanes. No more tornadoes. No more droughts. No more untimely frosts. We'll make the clouds release their water over the land instead of dumping it uselessly into the oceans. All the life processes of the planet will be where they belong, where the gods meant them to be, in our hands, and we'll manipulate them the way a programmer manipulates a computer. And that's where it stands right now. We have to carry the conquest of of the world forward, and carrying it forward is either going to destroy the world or turn it into a paradise. into the paradise it was meant to be under human rule and if we manage to do this if we finally manage to make ourselves the absolute rulers of the world then nothing can stop us then we move into the star trek era man moves out into space to conquer and rule the entire universe and that may be the ultimate destiny of man to conquer and rule the entire universe that's how wonderful man is to my astonishment Ishmael picked up a wand from his pile and waved it at me in an enthusiastic gesture of approval. Once again, that was excellent, he said, neatly biting off its leafy head. Will you realize, of course, that if you'd been telling this part of the story a hundred years ago, or even fifty years ago, you would have spoken only of the paradise to come. The idea that man's conquest of the world could be anything but beneficial would have been unthinkable to you. Until the last three or four decades, the people of your culture had no doubt that things were going to be, that things were just going to go on and getting better and better forever. There was no conceivable end in sight. Yes, that is so. There is, however, one element of the story you've left out, and we need it to complete your culture's explanation of how things came to be this way. What element is that? I think you can figure it out. So far, we have this much. The world was made for man to conquer and rule, and under human rule, it was meant to become a paradise. This clearly had to be followed by a but. It has always been followed by a but. This is because takers have always perceived that the world was far short of the paradise it was meant to be. True. Let me see. How is this? The world was made for man to conquer and rule, but his conquests turned out to be more destructive than was anticipated. You're not listening. The but was part of the story long before your conquest became globally destructive. The but was there to explain all the flaws in your paradise: warfare and brutality, and poverty and injustice, and corruption and tyranny. It's still there today to explain famine and oppression, and nuclear proliferation and pollution. It explained World War Two, and if it ever has to, it will explain World War Three. I looked at him blankly. This is commonplace. Any third grader could supply it. I'm sure you're right, but I don't see it yet. Come, think. What went What went wrong here? What has always gone wrong here under human rule? The world should have become a paradise, but, but people screwed it up. Of course. And why did they screw it up? Why? Did they screw it up because they didn't want a paradise? No. The way it's seen, they were bound to screw it up. They wanted to turn the world into a paradise, but being human, 
they were bound to screw it up. But why? Why, being human, were they bound to screw it up? It's because there's something fundamentally wrong with humans, something that definitively works against paradise, something that makes people stupid and destructive and greedy and short-sighted. Of course, everyone in your culture knows this. Man was born to turn the world into a paradise, but tragically, he was born flawed. And so his paradise had always been spoiled by stupidity, greed, destructiveness and short-sightedness. That's right. Having second thoughts, I gave him a long, incredulous stare. Are you suggesting that this explanation is false? Ishmael shook his head. It's pointless to argue with mythology. Once upon a time, the people of your culture believed that man's home was the center of the universe. Man was the reason the universe had been created in the first place. So it made sense that his home should be its capital. The followers of Copernicus didn't argue with this. They didn't point at people and say, you're wrong. They pointed at the heavens and said, look at what's actually there. I'm not sure what you're getting at. How did the takers come to the conclusion that there's something fundamentally wrong with humans? What evidence were they looking at? I don't know. I think you're being purposely dense. They were looking at the evidence of human history. True. And when did human history begin? Well, three million years ago. Ishmael gave me a disgusted look. Those three million years were only very recently tacked onto human history, as you very well know. Before that, it was universally assumed that human history began when? Well, just a few thousand years ago. Of course. In fact, among the people of your culture, it was assumed that the whole of human history was your history. No one had the slightest suspicion that human life extended beyond your reign. That is so. So when the people of your culture concluded that there's something fundamentally wrong with humans, what evidence were they looking at? They were looking at the evidence of their own history. Exactly. They were looking at half of 1% of the evidence taken from a single culture. Not a reasonable sample on which to base such a sweeping conclusion. No. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with people. Given the story to enact that puts them in accord with the people of the world, they will live in accord with the world. But given a story that enacts to put them at odds with the world, as yours does, they will live at odds with the world. Given a story to enact in which they are the lords of the world, they will act like the lords of the world. And given a story to enact in the world is a foe to be conquered, they will conquer it like a foe. And one day, inevitably, their foe will lie bleeding to death at their feet, as the world is now. A few days ago, Ishmael said, I described your explanation of how things came to be this way as a mosaic. What we've looked at so far is only the cartoon of the mosaic, the general outline of the picture. We're not going to fill in the cartoon here. That's something you can easily do for yourself when we are finished. Okay. However, one major element of the cartoon remains to be sketched in before we go on. One of the most striking features of taker culture is its passionate and unwavering dependence on prophets. The influence of people like Moses, Gautam Buddha, Confucius, Jesus, and Muhammad in taker history is simply enormous. I'm sure you're aware of that. Yes. What makes it so striking is the fact that there is absolutely nothing like this among the leavers, unless it occurs as a response to some devastating contact with taker culture, as in the case of the Vovoka and the ghost dance, 
or John from or the cargo cults of the South Pacific. Aside from these, there is no tradition whatever of prophets rising up among the leavers to straighten out their lives and give them new sets of laws or principles to live by. I was sort of vaguely aware of that. I suppose everyone is. I think it's, uh, I don't know. Go on. I think the feeling is, what the hell? Who cares about these people? I mean, it's no great surprise that savages have no prophets. God didn't really get interested in mankind until those nice white Neolithic farmers came along. Yes, that's well perceived. But what, what I meant to look at right now is not the absence of prophets among the leavers, but the enormous influence of prophets among the takers. Millions have been willing to back their choice of profit with their very lives. What makes them so important? It's a hell of a good question, but I don't think I know the answer. All right, try this. What were the prophets trying to accomplish here? What were they here to do? You said it yourself a minute ago. They were here to straighten us out and tell us how we ought to live. Vital information, worth dying for, evidently. Evidently. But why? Why do you need prophets to tell you how you ought to live? Why do you need anyone to tell you how you ought to live? Ah, okay. I see what you're getting at. We need prophets to tell us how we ought to live because otherwise we wouldn't know. Of course. Questions about how people ought to live always end up becoming religious questions among takers, always end up being arguments among the prophets. For example, when abortion began to be legalized in this country, it was initially treated as a purely civil matter. But when people begin to have second thoughts about it, they turn to their prophets, and it soon became a religious squabble, with both sides lining up clergy to back them. In the same way, the question of legalizing drugs like heroin and cocaine is now being debated primarily in practical terms. But if it ever becomes a serious possibility, people of a certain turn of mind will undoubtedly begin combining scriptures to see what their prophets have to say on the subject. Yes, that is so. This is such an automatic response that people just take it for granted. A minute ago you said, we need prophets to tell us how we ought to live, because otherwise we wouldn't know. Why is that? Why wouldn't you know how to live without your prophets? That's a good question. I'd say it's because, uh, look at the case of abortion. We can argue about it for a thousand years, but there's never going to be an argument powerful enough to end the argument, because every argument has a counter-argument, so it's impossible to know what we should do. That's why we need the prophet. The prophet knows. Yes, I think that's it. But the question remains, why don't you know? I think the question remains because I can't answer it. You know how to split atoms, how to send explorers to the moon, how to splice genes. But you don't know how people ought to live? That's right. Why is that? What does mother culture have to say? Ah, I said, and closed my eyes. After a minute or two... Mother culture says it's possible to have a certain knowledge about things like atoms and space travel and genes, but there's no such thing as a certain knowledge about how people should live. It's just not available. And that's why we don't have it. I see. And having listened to mother culture, what do you say? In this case, I say I have to agree. Certain knowledge about how people ought to live is just not out there. In other words, the best you can do, since there's nothing out there, is to consult the insides of your head. That's what's being done in the debate about legalizing drugs.
Each side is preparing a case based on what's reasonable. And whichever way you actually jump, you still won't know whether you did the right thing. That's absolutely right. It won't be a question of doing what ought to be done because there's no way of finding it out. It'll just be a question of taking a vote. You're quite sure about all of this. There's simply no way to obtain any certain knowledge about how people ought to live. Absolutely sure. How do you come by this assurance? I don't know. Certain knowledge about how to live is unobtainable in any of the ways we derive certain knowledge. As I say, it's just not out there. Have any of you ever looked out there? I snickered. Has anyone ever said, well, we have certain knowledge about all these other things. Why don't we see if any such knowledge can be found out about how to live? Has anyone ever done that? I doubt it. Doesn't that seem strange to you? Considering the fact that this is by far the most important problem mankind has to solve, has ever had to solve, you'd think there would be a whole branch of science devoted to it. Instead, we find that is not a single one of you has ever wondered whether any such knowledge is even out there to be obtained. We know it's not there. In advance of looking, you mean? That's right. Not a very scientific procedure for such a scientific people. True. We now know two highly important things about people, Ishmael said. At least according to Taker mythology, one, there is something fundamentally wrong with them, and two, they have no certain knowledge about how they ought to live, and never will have any. It seems as though there should be a connection between these two things. Yes, if people knew how to live, then they'd be able to handle what was wrong with human nature. I mean... Knowing how to live would have to include knowing how to live as flawed beings. If it didn't, then it wouldn't be the real McCoy. Do you see what I mean? I think so. In effect, you're saying that if you knew how you ought to live, then the flaw in man could be controlled. If you knew how you ought to live, you wouldn't be forever screwing up the world. Perhaps, in fact, the two things are actually one thing. Perhaps the flaw in man is exactly this, that he doesn't know how he ought to live. Yes, there is something to that. We now have in place all the major elements of your culture's explanation of how things came to be this way. The world was given to man to turn into a paradise, but he always screwed up because he is fundamentally flawed. He might be able to do something about this if he knew how he ought to live, but he doesn't. And he never will, because no knowledge about that is obtainable. So, however hard man might labor to turn the world into a paradise, he's probably just going to screw it up. Yes, that is the way it seems. It's a sorry story you have there, a story of hopelessness and futility, a story in which there is literally nothing to be done. Man is flawed, so he keeps on screwing up what should be paradise, and there's nothing you can do about it. You don't know how to live so as to stop screwing up paradise, and there's nothing you can do about that. So there you are rushing headlong towards catastrophe, and all you can do is watch it come. Yes, that is the way it seems. With nothing but this wretched story to enact, it's no wonder so many of you spend your lives stoned on drugs or booze or television. It's no wonder why many of you go mad or become suicidal. True. But is there another one? Another what? Another story to be in. Yes, there is another story to be in. But the takers are doing their level best to destroy that along with everything else. 
Have you done much sightseeing in your travels? I blinked at him stupidly. Sightseeing? Have you gone out of your way to look at the local sights? I guess so, sometimes. I'm sure you've noticed that only tourists really look at the local landmarks. For all practical purposes, the landmarks are invisible to the natives, simply because they're always there in plain sight. Yes, that is so. This is what we've been doing in our journey so far. We've been wandering around your cultural homeland, looking at the landmarks the natives never see. A visitor from another planet would find them rec- remarkable, even extraordinary. But the natives of your culture can take them for granted and don't even notice them. That's right. You had to clamp my head between your heads and point it in one direction and say, Don't you see that? And I'd say, See what? There's nothing to see here. We spent a lot of time today looking at your most impressive monuments, an axiom stating that there is no way to obtain any certain knowledge about how people ought to live. Mother culture offers this for acceptance on its own merits, without proof, since it's inherently unprovable. True. And the conclusion you draw from this axiom is, therefore there's no point in looking for such knowledge. That's right. According to your maps, the world of thought is coterminous with your culture. It ends at the border of your culture. And if you venture beyond that border, you simply fall off the edge of the world. Do you see what I mean? I think so. Tomorrow we'll screw up our coverage and cross that border. And as you'll see, we will not fall off the edge of the world. We'll just find ourselves in new territory, in territory never explored by anyone in your culture, because your maps say it isn't there, and it indeed can't be there. Part 6 And how are you feeling today? Ishmael asked. Palms sweating, heart going pit-a-pat? I gazed at him thoughtfully through the glass that separated us. This twinkle-light playfulness was something new, and I wasn't sure I liked it. I was tempted to remind him he was a gorilla, for God's sake, and but I held it in and muttered. Relatively calm, so far. Good, like the second murderer. You are one whom the wild blows and buffets of the world have so incensed that you are reckless what you do to spite the world. Absolutely. Then let's begin. We confront a wall at the boundary of thought in your culture. Yesterday I called it a monument. But I suppose there's nothing to prevent a wall from being a monument as well. In any case, this wall is an axiom stating that certain knowledge about how people should live is unobtainable. I reject this axiom and climb over the wall. We don't need prophets to tell us how to live. We can find out ourselves by consulting what's actually there. There was nothing to say that, so I just shrugged. You're skeptical, of course, according to the takers. All sorts of useful information can be found in the universe, but none of it pertains to how people should live. By studying the universe, you've learned how to fly, split atoms, send messages to the stars at the speed of light, and so on. But there's no way of studying the universe to acquire the most basic and needful knowledge of all, the knowledge of how you ought to live. That's right. A century ago, the would-be aeronauts of the world were in exactly the same condition with regard to learning how to fly. Do you see why? No, I don't see what aeronauts have to do with it. It was far from certain that the knowledge that these would-be aeronauts were looking for existed at all. Some said it wasn't out there to be found, so there was no point looking for it. Do you see the similarity now? Yes, I suppose. There's more to the similarity than that, however. 
At that point in time, there wasn't a single piece of knowledge about flying that could be considered certain. Everyone had his own theory, one would say. The only way to achieve flight is to imitate the bird. You've got to have a pair of flapping wings. Another would say, one pair isn't enough. You've got to have two. And another would say, nonsense. Paper airplanes fly without flapping wings. And you need a pair of rigid wings and a power plant to push you through the air. And so on. They could argue their pet notions to their heart's content because there wasn't a single thing that was certain. All they could do was proceed by trial and error. Mm -hmm. What would have enabled them to proceed in a more efficient way? Well, as you say, obviously some knowledge. But what knowledge in particular? Lord, they needed to know how to produce lift. They needed to know that air flowing over an airfoil. What's it you're trying to describe? I'm trying to describe what happens when air flows over an airfoil. You mean what always happens when air flows over an airfoil? That's right. What's that called? A statement that describes what always happens when certain conditions are met. A law. Of course, the early aeronauts had to proceed by trial and error because they didn't know the laws of aerodynamics. Didn't even know there were laws. Okay, I see what you're getting at now. The people of your culture are in the same condition when it comes to learning how they ought to live. They have to proceed by trial and error because they don't know the relevant laws and don't even know that there are laws. And I agree with them, I said. You're certain that no laws can be discovered concerning how people ought to live? That's right. Obviously, there are made-up laws, like laws against drug use, but these can be changed by a vote. You can't change laws of aerodynamics by a vote. And there are no laws like that about how people should live. I understand. That's what mother culture teaches. And in this case, you agree with her. That's fine. But at last, you have a clear understanding of what I'm attempting here. To show you a law that you will agree is not subject to change by any vote. Okay, my mind is open. But I can't imagine any way in the world you're going to accomplish that. What's the law of gravity? Ishmael asked once again startling me with an apparent change of subject. The law of gravity? Well, the law of gravity is every particle in the universe is attracted to every other particle. And this attraction varies with the distance between them. And the expression of the law was read where? What do you mean? It was derived by looking at what? Well, at matter, I suppose. The behavior of matter. It wasn't derived by a close study of the habits of bees. No. If you want to study the habits of bees, you study bees. You don't study mountain building. That's right. And if you had the strange notion that there might be a set of laws about how to live, where would you look for it? I don't know. Would you look into the heavens? No. Would you delve into the realm of subatomic particles? No. Would you study the properties of wood? No. Take a wild guess. Anthropology? Anthropology is a field of study like physics. Did Newton discover the law of gravity by reading a book on physics? Is that where the law was written? No. Where was it written? In matter. In the universe of matter. So, again, if there is a law pertaining to life, where will we find it written? I suppose in human behavior. I have amazing news for you. Man is not alone on this planet. He is a part of a community upon which he depends absolutely. Have you ever had any suspicions to that effect? 
It was the first time I'd seen him raise a single eyebrow. You don't have to be sarcastic, I told him. What's the name of this community, of which man is only one member? The community of life. Bravo! Does it seem at all plausible to you that the law we're looking for could be written in this community? I don't know. What does mother culture say? I close my eyes and listen for a while. Mother culture says that if there were such a law, it wouldn't apply to us. Why not? Because we are so far above the rest of the community. I see. And can you think of any other laws from which you are exempt because you are humans? What do you mean? I mean that cows and cockroaches are subject to the law of gravity. Are you exempt? No. Are you exempt from the laws of aerodynamics? No. Genetics? No. Thermodynamics? No. Can you think of any laws at all from which humans are exempt? Not offhand. Let me know if you do. That will be real news. Okay. But meanwhile, if there does happen to be a law that governs behavior in the community of life in general, humans would be exempt from it. Well, that's what mother culture says. And what do you say? I don't know. I don't see how a law for turtles and butterflies could be of much relevance to us. I assume the turtles and butterflies follow the law you're talking about. That's right, they do. As to relevance, the laws of aerodynamics weren't always relevant to you, were they? No. When did they become relevant? Well, when we wanted to fly. When you wanted to fly, the laws governing flight become relevant. Yes, that's right. And when you're on the brink of extinction and want to live for a while longer, the laws governing life might conceivably become relevant. Yes, I suppose they might. What is the effect of the law of gravity? What's gravity good for? I'd say gravity is what organizes things on the macroscopic level. It's what keeps things together, the solar system, the galaxy, the universe. Ishmael nodded. And the law we are looking for is the law that keeps the living community together. It organizes things on the biological level just the way the law of gravity organizes things on the macroscopic level. Okay, I guess Ishmael could sense I had something else on my mind because he waited for me to go on. It's hard to believe our own biologists aren't aware of this law. Lines of amused astonishment crinkled the blue-gray skin of his face. Do you imagine that mother culture doesn't talk to your biologists? No. Then what does she tell them? That if there is such a law, it doesn't apply to us. Of course. But that doesn't really answer your question. Your biologist would certainly not be astounded to hear that behavior in the natural community follows certain patterns. You have to remember that when Newton articulated the law of gravity, no one was astounded. It's not a superhuman achievement to notice that unsupported objects fall towards the center of Earth. Everyone past the age of two knows that. Newton's achievement was not in discovering the phenomena of gravity. It was formulating the phenomena as a law. Yes, I see what you mean. In the same way, nothing you discover here about life in the community of life is going to astound anyone. Certainly not naturalists or biologists or animal behaviorists. My achievement, if I succeed, will simply be in formulating it as a law. Okay, got it. Would you say the law of gravity is about flight? I thought about that for a while and said, it isn't about flight, but it's certainly relevant to flight, inasmuch it applies to aircraft in the same way it applies to rocks. 
It makes no distinction between aircraft and rocks. Yes, that's well said. The law we are looking for here is much like that with respect to civilization. It is not about civilization, but it applies to civilizations in the same way it applies to flocks of birds and herds of deer. It makes no distinction between human civilizations and beehives. It applies to all species without distinction. This is the one reason why the law has remained undiscovered in your culture. According to Taker mythology, man is by definition a biological exception. Out of all the millions of species, only one is an end product. The world wasn't made to produce frogs or katydids or sharks or grasshoppers. It was made to produce man. Man therefore stands alone, uniquely and infinitely apart from all the rest. True. Ishmael spent the next few minutes staring at a point about 20 inches in front of his nose. I began to wonder if he'd forgotten I was there. Then he shook his head and came to. For the first time in our acquaintance, he delivered something like a mini-lecture. The gods have played three dirty tricks on the takers, he began. In the first place, they didn't put the world where the takers thought it belonged, in the centre of the universe. They really hated hearing this, but they got used to it. Even if man's home was stuck off in the boondocks, they could still believe he was the central figure in the drama of creation. The second of the gods' tricks was worse. Since man was the climax of creation, the creature for whom all the rest was made, they should have had the decency to produce him in a manner suited to his dignity and importance, in a separate, special act of creation. Instead, they arranged from him to evolve from the common slime, just like the ticks and liver flukes. The takers really hated hearing this, but they are beginning to adjust to it. Even if man evolved from common slime, it is still his divinely appointed destiny to rule the world and perhaps even the universe itself. But the last of the gods' tricks was the worst of all. Though the takers don't know it yet, the gods did not exempt man from the law that governs the lives of the grubs and the ticks and shrimps and rabbits and mollusks and deer and lion and jellyfish. They did not exempt him from this law any more than they exempted him from the law of gravity. And this is going to be the bitterest blow of all to the takers. To the gods' other dirty tricks, they could adjust. To this one, no adjustment is possible. He sat there for a while, a hillside of fur and flesh. I guess letting this pronouncement sink in, then he went on. Every law has effects or it wouldn't be discoverable as a law. The effects of the law we are looking for are very simple. Species that live in compliance with the law live forever, environmental conditions permitting. This will, I hope, be taken as good news for mankind in general, because if mankind lives in compliance with this law, then it too will live forever, or for as long as conditions permit. But of course this isn't the law's only effect. Those species that do not live in compliance with the law become extinct. In the scale of biological time, they become extinct very rapidly. And this is going to be very bad news for the people of your culture, the worst they've heard. I hope, I said, that you don't think any of this is showing me where to look for this law. Ishmael thought for a moment, then took a branch from the pile at his right, held it up to me to see it, and let it fall to the floor. That's the effect Newton was trying to explain. He waved a hand towards the world outside. That's the effect I'm trying to explain. Looking out there, 
you see a world full of species that environmental conditions permitting are going to go on living indefinitely. Yes, that's what I assume. But why does it need explaining? Ishmael selected another branch from his pile, held it up and let it fall to the floor. Why does that need explaining? Okay, so you're saying this phenomena is not the result of nothing, it's the effect of a law. A law is an operation. Exactly, a law is an operation, and my task is to show you how it operates. At this point, the easiest way to show you how it operates is by analogy with the laws you already know, the law of gravity and the law of aerodynamics. Okay. You know that as we sit here, we are in no sense defying the law of gravity. Unsupported objects fall toward the center of the earth, and the surface on which we are sitting are our supports. Right. The laws of aerodynamics don't provide us with a way of defying the law of gravity. I'm sure you understand that. They simply provide us with a way of using the air as a support. A man sitting in an airplane is subject to the law of gravity in exactly the same way we are subject to it sitting here. Nevertheless, the man is sitting in the plane obviously enjoys a freedom we lack, the freedom of the air. Yes. The law we are looking for is like the law of gravity. There is no escaping it. But there is a way of achieving the equivalent of flight, the equivalent of freedom of the air. In other words, it is possible to build a civilization that flies. I stared at him for a while and then I said, Okay. You remember how the takers went about trying to achieve powered flight? They didn't begin with an understanding of the law of aerodynamics. They didn't begin with a theory based on research and carefully planned experimentation. They just built contraptions, pushed them off the sides of the cliffs and hoped for the best. True. Alright, I want to follow one of those early trials in detail. Let's suppose that this trial is being made in one of the wonderful pedal-driven contraptions with flapping wings, based on a mistaken understanding of avian flight. Okay. As the flight begins, all is well. Our would-be airman has been pushed off the edge of the cliff and is pedaling away, and the wings of his craft are flapping like crazy. He is feeling wonderful, ecstatic. He is experiencing the freedom of the air. What he doesn't realize, however, is that this craft is aerodynamically incapable of flight. It simply isn't in compliance with the laws that make flight possible. But he would laugh if you told him this. He's never heard of such laws, knows nothing of them. He would just point at those wings flapping away and say, See? Just like a bird. Nevertheless, whatever he thinks, he's not in flight. He's an unsupported object falling towards the center of the earth. He's not in flight. He's in free fall. Are you with me so far? Yes. Fortunately, or rather unfortunately for our airmen, he chose a very high cliff to launch his craft from. His disillusionment is a long way off in time and space. There he is in free fall, feeling wonderful and congratulating himself on his triumph. He's like the man in the joke who jumps out of the 90th floor window on a bet. As he passes the 10th floor, he says to himself, well, so far so good. There he is in free fall, experiencing the exhilaration of what he takes to be flight. From his great height, he can see for miles around, and just one thing he sees puzzles him. The floor of the valley is dotted with craft just like his, not crashed, simply 
abandoned. Why, he wonders, aren't these craft in the air instead of sitting on the ground? What sort of fools would abandon their aircraft when they could be enjoying the freedom of the air? Ah well, the behavioural quirks of less talented, earthbound mortals are none of his concern. However, looking down into the valley has brought something else to his attention. He doesn't seem to be maintaining his altitude. In fact, the earth seems to be rising up towards him. Well, he's not very worried about it. After all, his flight has been complete success up to now. And there's no reason why it shouldn't go on being a success. He just has to pedal a little harder, that's all. So far, so good, he thinks. He thinks with amusement of those who predicted that his flight would end in disaster, broken bones and death. Here he is. He's come all this way and he hasn't even gotten a bruise, much less a broken bone. But then he looks down again and what he sees really disturbs him. The law of gravity is catching up to him at the rate of 32 feet per second per second, at an accelerating rate. The ground is now rushing up towards him in an alarming way. He's disturbed but far from desperate. My craft has brought me this far in safety, he tells himself. I just have to keep going. And so he starts pedaling with all his might, which of course does him no good at all, because his craft simply isn't in accord with the laws of aerodynamics. Even if he had the power of 10,000 men in his legs, a million, that craft is not going to achieve flight. That craft is doomed. And so he is unless he abandons it. Right, I see what you're saying. But I don't see the connection with what we're talking about here. Ishmael nodded. Here is the connection. 10,000 years ago, the people of your culture embarked on a similar flight. A civilizational flight. Their craft wasn't designed according to any theory at all. Like our imaginary airmen, they were totally unaware that there is a law that must be complied with in order to achieve their civilizational flight. They didn't even wonder about it. They wanted the freedom of the air, and so they pushed off in the first contraption that came to hand. The Taker Thunderbolt. At first, all was well. All was terrific. The takers were pedaling away and the wings of their craft were flapping beautifully. They felt wonderful, exhilarated. They were experiencing the freedom of the air, freedom from the restraints that bind and limit the rest of the biological community. And with that freedom came marvels, all the things you mentioned the other day, urbanization, technology, literacy, mathematics, science. Their flight could never end. It could only go on becoming more and more exciting. They couldn't know, couldn't even have guessed that, like our hapless airmen, they were in air but not in flight. They were in free fall because their craft was simply not in compliance with the law that makes flight possible. But their disillusionment is far away in the future and so they're pedaling away having a wonderful time. Like our airmen, they see strange sights in the course of their fall. They see the remains of craft very like their own and not destroyed, merely abandoned by the Maya, by the Hohokam, by the Anasazi, by the peoples of Hopewell cult, not to mention only a few of those were found in the new world. Why, they wonder, are these craft on the ground instead of in the air? Why would any people prefer to be earthbound when they could have the freedom of the air as we do? It is beyond comprehension. 
an unfathomable mystery. Ah well, the vagaries of such foolish people are nothing to the takers. They're peddling away and having a wonderful time. They're not going to abandon their craft. They're going to enjoy the freedom of the air forever. But alas, a law is catching up to them. They don't know such a law even exists. But this ignorance affords them no protection from its effects. This is a law as unforgiving as the law of gravity. And it's catching up to them in exactly the same way the law of gravity caught up to our airmen, at an accelerating rate. Some gloomy 19th century thinkers, like Robert Wallace and Thomas Robert Malthus, looked down. A thousand years before, even 500 years before, they would probably have noticed nothing. But now what they see alarms them. It's as though the ground is rushing up to meet them, as though they're going to crash. There, they do some figuring and say, If we go on this way, we're going to be in big trouble in the not-too-distant future. The other takers shrug their predictions off. We've come all this enormous way and haven't even received so much as a scratch. It is true the ground seems to be rising up to meet us, but that just means we'll have to paddle a little harder. Not to worry. Nevertheless, just as was predicted, Famine soon becomes a routine condition of life in many parts of the Taker Thunderbolt, and the Takers have to pedal even harder and more efficiently than before. But oddly enough, the harder and more efficiently they pedal, the worse conditions become. Very strange. Peter Farb calls it a paradox. Intensification of production to feed an increased population leads to a still greater increase in population. Never mind, the Takers said. We'll just have to put some people peddling away on a reliable method of birth control. Then the taker thunderbolt will fly forever. But such simple answers aren't enough to reassure the people of your culture nowadays. Everyone is looking down. And it's obvious that the ground is rushing up towards you. And rushing up faster every year. Basic ecological and planetary systems are being impacted by the taker thunderbolt. And that impact increases in intensity every year. Basic, irreplaceable sources are being devoured every year. And they're being devoured more greedily every year. Whole species are disappearing as a result of your encroachment. And they're disappearing in a greater number every year. Pessimists, or it may be that they're realists, look down and say, well, the crash may be 20 years off or maybe as much as 50. Actually, it could happen anytime. There's no way to be sure. But, of course, there are optimists as well who say, we must have faith in our craft. After all, it has brought us this far in safety. What's ahead isn't doom. It's just a little hump that we can clear if we all just pedal a little harder. Then we'll soar into a glorious, endless future, and the take a thunderbolt will take us into the stars, and we'll conquer the universe itself. But your craft isn't going to save you. Quite the contrary. It's your craft that's carrying you towards catastrophe. Five billion of you pedaling away, or ten billion, or twenty billion, can't make it fly. It's been in free fall from the beginning, and that fall is about to end. At last, I had something of my own to add to this. The worst part of it is this, I said. The survivors, if there are any, will immediately set about doing it all over again, exactly the same way. Yes, I'm afraid you're right. Trial and error isn't a bad way to learn how to build an aircraft. 
but it can be a disastrous way to learn how to build a civilization.